0: This is a sermon podcast of the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcbalone.org. Esther chapter 4 is where we'll be tonight. And um, I'll I'll let you turn to Esther chapter 4. But I'm going I'm to stop really quickly at a one verse of Scripture. I'm going to read it to you and um, give a one or two-sentence context of this one little verse and then let you do with it as you need to. Well, let me go and give the comment first. Some have asked, well, you know, who do we support? Who are we to, supposed to vote for? Does the Bible give any clarity? Perhaps, Proverbs 29 and verse 2, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. Let he who has an ear, let him hear. Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. So we're talking about these rules, as it were, rules of living, how, how do we trust God's unseen hand? You know, when, when he's not talked about, um, when in, in a book like this, he's not mentioned at all. How do we know that he's there in our lives when we don't seem to see or have that assurance that he's working? What do we do? And so the series title is called Learning to Trust God's Unseen Hand. And each night I've been giving you a principle, one one overarching rule that emerges from the text. And then, you know, I'll, we'll, we'll work through the text and give you some supporting uh, application and supporting conclusions to this rule. And so uh, rule number six or, or lesson number six is this. We're going to learn in Esther 4. To trust God to place you right where you need to be for the purpose He intends. Capital H E. Let me say that again. Trust God to place you right where you need to be for the purpose He intends. Trust God to place you right where you need to be for the purpose He intends. Let's uh, look at the paragraphs here. I'll read a paragraph at a time. I'll give explanation and we'll work through the chapter that way. Esther 4, beginning in verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Verse 2. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate. For no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews. With fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Verses 1 through 3 describe for us a typical Old Testament slash general biblical picture of mourning, of what it means to mourn the loss of uh, someone. Now, his intense grief is um, very different than what we are accustomed to. In the West and in our culture, we're very good at keeping our emotions to ourselves, aren't we? We're very good at going into the funeral home. We wait in the line, you know, for the visitation, and you know, we shake hands, we hug, we may have a tissue. There may be some light sobbing or whatever, but generally speaking, people just don't go nuts and lose it. Typically, now I have been in some funerals, and perhaps you have too. Um, I have been in a funeral where I lost it because I was at the funeral of a very dear friend who was taken suddenly and tragically, and I was not ready to say goodbye. And so we're not used to doing it, but in this case, this was typical. What Mordecai was doing was common. Now, there are some uh, elements of his grief that I'd like to talk about very quickly. Number one, he he tore his clothes there in, in verse 1, that's an expression of intense grief. We've you've, you've seen it in the in the Old Testament, Genesis thirty seven, Second Samuel one, Isaiah three, Daniel chapter uh, five, uh, uh, nine, Daniel chapter nine. Uh, these these moments of intense grief, they'll, they'll tear their clothes. Uh, right here, kind of like the collar, just kind of you know rip it there, and and, and then, of course, actually other nations, this was not just um, Jewish. There were other um, Middle Eastern cultures that would do something very similar. So, while it was Jewish and a Jewish expression, it wasn't exclusively Jewish. Um, uh, The the, uh, historian Herodotus wrote about other cultures, you know, doing the tearing of clothes. And then, furthermore, uh, and and what uh, the second thing he does, Mordecai, he puts on the sackcloth ashes. Now, you can think of it as tearing the clothes, step one, sackcloth and ashes, step two. Tearing the clothes, I'm really super sad. Sackcloth and ashes, I'm really super duper sad with a cherry on top. I mean, it's, it was, it's like it's as bad as it can get, okay? What was it? Well, uh, garments were, you know, torn like I just mentioned. A hairy garment was put on, uh, uh, something of, of goat um, uh, goat hair. Uh, I'm sure that would not wear very well at all. I'm sure it was quite uncomfortable. Uh, and then the ashes were, were uh, uh, spread about the head and then falling down, uh, of course. Um, what was he so distraught over? Um, it was not his refusal to bow down. It's quite clear that he is mourning over the edict that was declared by Haman, we studied last week. He is facing annihilation. He is mourning He's mourning his own impending death if something doesn't happen. An interesting note is that uh, I was reading some commentators who note that in the Hebrew grammar, um, Hebrew is not the easiest language to decipher, at least for me. So I've always had difficulty with Hebrew. But So I, I have to use lexicon help and you know other, other sources. And reading some experts on Hebrew grammar here they suggest that the grammar is lending itself to Mordecai actually staging the scene of mourning. And in other words, it wasn't 100% a natural reaction. This was maybe 60% natural reaction, 40% I'm going to put on a show. Now, it wasn't for him to be a drama queen or you know, nothing like that. Mordecai's a very smart man. He knows where the king is. He knows where the queen is. He knows the communication between him and, and all that going on. He knows all this. So if you look at the text, he says he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. So he's he's gonna kind of break a, a a rule there, a cultural rule. He's gonna go where he knows he's gonna get attention. I mean, he's he's like, you know, he's in, you know, he, he's gonna cross the you know the, the borderline, so to speak. He's gonna go into the place where he isn't. Because he knows that out in the territories where the others were mourning, in verse 3, there, I mean, this was done all over the place, he's got to get somebody's attention. It's what he's wanting to do. And so that's kind of like what we see here with the um, uh, with, with the grammar here. Furthermore, it was not uncommon biblically to pay people to mourn for you and with you. We see that indicated in Amos chapter 5 and Matthew chapter Uh, 9. Josephus, the great Jewish historian, wrote that particularly in first century, people would pay uh, pay, uh, uh, flute players to play the flute. And it was so common that when you heard the flute playing, it was kind of like, okay, that's funeral music, you know. Uh, So it was a very common practice. So in other words, my, my point in saying this is, He's not just doing this to put on a show. He's got a purpose behind his show, as it were. So he's controlling his timing of this. He's controlling his expression. And then look at verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. So you see, he's going to a place where there is, there is, there's going to be um, someone to relay a message. You see, the eunuchs, eunuchs are walking violent. Dude, what is that guy doing? Oh, I think that's Esther's, you know, good friend. i, I we going to we'll let Esther know what's happening over here. So, what did she do? Verse four: She sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so that he might take off his sackcloth. But he would not accept them. Mm-hmm. Then Esther called for Hathach. One of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Verse six. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. So here's the exchange thus far. Esther says to the eunuch, go tell Mordecai to buck up. You know, he, give him a fresh change of clothes. to him, it's going to be all right. Whatever's bothering you, just cheer, cheer up, dude. Just cheer up. Uh, Mordecai, no girl, I ain't having any of that. As a matter of fact, uh, Mr. Eunuch, when you go back to Esther, this is what I want you to tell her. Number one, I want you to tell her that this guy Haman, that, you know, everybody thinks is the, King's friend, and he may be, but he is bribing his way into a genocide. And number two, just in case you don't understand what I'm talking about, here is the edict in writing. Now, what's interesting thus far, as we see in the text, Esther had no clue as to what was really going on. Right? If she did, do you not think that her initial response to Mordecai would have been different? I think so. I think she herself would have been troubled. Which lets you know that in the king's palace, you know, that, that monthly newsletter just sometimes leaves out a few important messages, you see. So Mordecai gives uh, a copy of the edict. Verse 9, Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, Verse 11, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. Let's just stop right there. Does anyone find anything peculiar about what she just said? I, I've, I've overlooked it for a long time. What is she afraid of? Well, what is she afraid of? If she goes to the king, what is she afraid of? Death. Didn't she just read her own death sentence? Girl, you're going to be dead either way. You're guaranteed death by this edict. You don't know what might happen if you go to the king without being summoned. I mean, yes, you know that there's a law in the books, but you just don't know. She said, but as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. I mean, I, I'm it's not like I have a direct audience with him, Mordecai. I, I just just because I'm the queen doesn't mean a whole lot. It's I'm, I'm a figurehead. And they told verse 12, they, they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Now, these two verses constitute in many eyes of theologians and writers and experts on this subject and pastors I'm included. This is one of the linchpin texts of the entire Old Testament. Listen to what Mordecai says. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews in other words don't think that crown's going to save you i mean think about it esther look at the way he's treating you right now you think that that crown means anything to him another pretty face that's right now verse 14 this is this is it for a few keep silent at this time relief and deliverance will rise for the jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He didn't say the word God, but you can definitely be assured he was implying it. Esther, God's put you here. God has put you here for a reason. And let me just stop and kind of, you know, reassure all of you. God has put every one of you here for a reason. We as pro-lifers and those who argue the sanctity of life, of which I'm solidly in that camp, one of the reasons why I argue for uh, pro-life issues is that if the scripture declares and it does that children are a heritage from the what? From, From who? Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. That verse talks more than just the sanctity of life and personhood of the fetus inside the womb. It's basically giving us a theology that God has created that person or allowed the creation of that person for some very special purposes for which we as parents are distinctly responsible, according to Deuteronomy 6, to train them in the ways of the Lord. I believe you can argue solidly using the Old Testament alone that... Our supreme duty is to be fruitful and multiply and train up our children exclusively to serve the Lord. The psalmist says, like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Now think about the imagery. Okay? Okay? I think of my kids as a lot of things when they're naughty. (laughs) But the Bible says, no, they are arrows in the hands of a warrior. What do you do with an arrow? Put it in your bow. You draw it back. You aim for a target and you release them. My mother had a breakdown. When I went to go to college, 650 miles away from home, Nashville, Tennessee, I had never lived in a big city before, but it was the best uh, years of my early adult life. Ladies, I learned how to iron and wash. I learned how to clean. I learned how to take care of myself among other things. And I tell students, I, I still tell them and used to tell them when I was working with them full time, find the college that is farthest away from you if the Lord wants you to go to school. Find the one that would please Him as far away from home as possible and go there. Just trust me. It'll make a difference. That's why military is such a awesome endeavor. It gets them out... I had this one kid. I tell you, it was so funny. He said, man, I can't wait to leave home. Said, really? Yeah. My mom and daddy, they didn't tell me what to do all the time. I'm getting tired of it, man. Really? Yeah. Well, what are you going to do? I'm, I'm going to join the military, man. That's why I'm going to go join the army. I said, go for it, man. Awesome. I'm proud of you. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> the, this verse is teaching us, and, and this verse adds to that theology, that the, the, the argument for the sanctity of human life, um, God, okay, Westminster uh, Confession. Anybody familiar with the Westminster Confession? It's a catechism of the Presbyterian Church, and uh, I, I am for catechisms. It's a series of questions and answers that teaches children and adults theology. Okay, The first question of the Westminster uh, Catechism uh, says, what is the chief end of man? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God. That That is why we were created. I mean, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, we were created in God's image to worship the Creator. That was it. So it should not surprise us that when we teach and preach sanctity of life, we must include the purposes of God and our distinct responsibility as parents and the local church to help equip parents to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So that when they get into these very difficult positions, they will remember Esther chapter 4 verse 14 and realize, wait a minute, maybe God has put me where I need to be for such a time as this. that's what Mordecai is is telling us. And and, I mean, I I don't want to make Mordecai more than what he is. He didn't see this coming anymore, I don't think, to anybody. But I think he knew from the beginning the value of having the right person in the right place. Meaning Esther, a virgin, being carted off into the king's harem and having the position and the chance to being chosen as queen. And in fact, she was. Yes, the whole process was horrible and ugly. We, we looked at that several weeks ago, but she's there nonetheless in a place. And, and see, when we argue sanctity of life, I argue it from every perspective. Politically, a lot of people like to draw that line in rape and incest. Well, while that is horrible and ugly, I just believe the Lord can make things straight, even out of crooked sticks. If you know what I'm saying, and so that's the, that's the message here in Esther four, fourteen. So what is her response? Verse fifteen. Now this is where it starts to get really good. Really, especially for Esther. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, "Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa." And hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. Boom, there it is. Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She knows. If I don't, I'm dead. If I do, I might be dead. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. From this moment on, generally speaking, Mordecai no longer directs Esther. Esther directs Mordecai, starting right here. Her response, okay, go do a fast. Uh, No eating, no drinking, three days, not a day. I mean, you know, for, uh, uh, yeah, three straight days. 72 hours, right? No eating, no drinking. One of our early church fathers, Clement of Rome, summarized this whole chapter nicely when he said, To no less peril did Esther also, who was perfect in faith, expose herself that she might deliver the twelve tribes of Israel when they were on the point to perish. For through her fasting and her humiliation, she entreated the all-seeing master, the God of the ages. And he, seeing the humility of her soul, delivered the people for whose sake she encountered the peril. Isn't it beautiful? So, in relation to this rule, to trust God to put you in places where he needs you for his divine purposes... I want to make sure you understand that you are qualified to be put into places where God needs you. Okay. Now, we say this knowing we don't endorse sin to put us into certain places. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't, I'm not going to go be a drunkard so I can go minister to drunks. You, you know what I'm saying? I'm not going to willingly expose myself to 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 self-destructive behavior, but we need to realize that that. We are fully qualified as children of God to be put into some very peculiar places to be used of Him. Don't think that you have to be, you know, Moses or, or Sarah or, or, uh, or Esther or, or Ruth or, you know, or Joseph. I mean, we are who we are. So I want you to realize that you are fully capable and, and, and worthy of being put into a place. You just need to trust Him to do so. Here's some things I want you to remember. Three things that, that kind of support this little rule here we see in this chapter. Number one, trust God to place you where you will do the most good. Trust God to, to place you where you will do the most good. Um, two, two places we see this happening. Number one, Mordecai, he went to the one place in all of Susa where he knew he was going to get a certain kind of audience. He went to the king's gate. So he was going to go to the place where he was going to do the most good. Esther is going to go to the one place where she can do the most good, and that's going to the king. So trust God to place you where you will do the most good. Meaning that when you get to that point, when you're, you know, just seeking his face and and you say, well, Lord, I don't know how I've gotten here, but I'm here. God, I'm going to do what I can for the kingdom right where I am. I just, you know. That's it. So trust in the place you will do the most good. Number two, trust God to place you where you will be received. Trust God to place you where you will be received. I entered into a student ministry once, and um, uh, I you know, pastors, well, they'll, they'll sometimes embellish a story, right? You know, for the illustration, I'm not embellishing this at all. I went into a student ministry where... Every one of the kids hated me when I got there. I mean, they had scowls on their faces. They were punk rock kids. Hair, different shades of colors of the rainbow. The clothing. One kid, bless his heart, wore a three-eighths inch chain around his neck with a big master padlock as a necklace. Tiffany, you're there. I'm not making this up. Wednesday night, before youth group meeting, they had a little practice. They go into the bathrooms. They had these gauged earrings, like some African tribe. And it's like they would just, you know, it was... Expanding the circle, and blood would be trickling down. I'm not making this up. These kids were freaks, and I didn't like them either, to be honest with you. But I knew I trust. Okay, Lord, you've got me here, right? You got me here. The, the pastor really wanted me there to to be on staff with him, and that was one of the big things, and uh, among others, but. I mean, I knew I was walking into a, you know, pitiful situation. But, but number, trust God to place you where you will be received. There's this. There was this one kid. Um, for whatever reason, he was in that culture, but he just took a shine to me very quickly. Um, it you know took several weeks, but he just okay, I, I get him. He's cool. All right and that one kid his he kind of helped sway this one other kid and then uh, together these two kids just kind of started infiltrating the rest i kept loving on them as best as i could um and, and i had parents i had their parents because i was preaching and teaching you know the word and i had parents upset with me because um i was preaching and teaching the word you know so i had to you know i had thre- i had one dad you know threatened that he was going to beat me up and um whatever um but it took those two kids who did receive me and we walked into ministry tiffany what 10 maybe 12 that core group 10 or 12 and uh 12, 18 months, year, year and a half. We had a 400% increase in students. We were averaging, uh, over 40 kids on a Wednesday night and just a little over a year. Um, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't change what I was doing. I think they just realized that I was just not their enemy. I, I, I really loved them. I truly loved them. And, uh, God called me to another ministry assignment to a a church. My wife and I went to a church that had virtually no real good youth program there. And they wanted me and Tiffany to come and, just, you know, pour into those students as well, what few they had, and kind of build that up. And when I um, resigned, uh, those kids were, were, they weren't Mordecai, (laughs) you know, crying, but they were upset. Uh, I left some kids who... uh, who had a true love for Tiffany and I, and I had a love for them because I trusted the Lord to put me in a place where I would do the most good. And there was that one person who received me and it made all the difference. Number three, trust God to place you where you will lead well. And this is a critical thing. Um, Being placed in a position to... Make an impact on the kingdom assumes that you're going to have to lead. Okay. One of what these, one of the kids that was, that kind of received me, like I said there was there was one, and then the other one came right on the heels. That that second kid, he started very quickly regurgitating my points of view and my positions on things, and but almost regurgitating it in, in in a way. And in a language that his peers could more easily digest. In other words, I was a leader. He was following me, but he didn't know this. He was actually leading them as much as I was. But you've got to lead. In other words, you're going to have to make decisions that will impact others and yourself. In other words, just showing up and say, okay, Lord, I'm here. Well, that's great. you got to do something now. Inactivity is... Um, not acceptable. And so this is, this is a chapter. This, this is the, the chapter where things are going to start to turn. You, you notice how in four chapters so much built up. A, king, uh, a queen was disposed, or, uh, deposed and um, uh, the selection of a new queen and then here comes Haman and then this edict and I mean, all this stuff. Happening very rapidly. Now, we still have a few chapters left to go. As a matter of fact, we got 10 chapters. We're not quite at halfway. We're only at chapter four. We're going to spend more time on how things get unraveled. And this is where we're really going to see God moving. And these are going to be some key lessons. Please don't miss the ending of this study because what we see God doing and moving amongst his people, Esther and Mordecai, uh, and, and even Xerxes to a degree. Um, Going to be some really great lessons in there. So, Thank you for listening to this podcast from the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcbalone.org.